So Psalm 110 has been considered the greatest Messianic psalm, and let me, let me explain why. This particular psalm is the most quoted in your New Testament, and verse 1 is the most quoted verse. In fact, it's quoted in your New Testament approximately 25 times. So why should Psalm 110 have been so important to the early church and to the New Testament writers? To quote it that many times is is incredible. Well, the answer to that is uh, that Psalm 110 is the greatest of the Messianic Psalms. Of course, Messianic refers to the Messiah, who of course is Jesus Christ. It alone is about the Messiah and His work exclusively. 110 is entirely about a divine king. We're going to see that this divine king, the Messiah, has been installed at the right hand of God in heaven. He's presently engaged in extending his spiritual rule throughout the whole earth. It also tells us that his this divine Messiah is a priest. And not only is he a king, but he is a priest. We're going to find in combination with that, that he is also a judge, a a great warrior who is going to return to execute final judgment on the nations. And so you'll see here is the theme of Psalm 110. This psalm is going to show Christ in a fourfold light. It's going to show that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is God, King, Priest, and Warrior. He's all of those combined into one person. So let's, let's just take each one of those four points there and look at them individually. Number one, we see that Christ, the Messiah, is God. We see that in verse 1. The the most quoted verse in your Old Testament that you see in in the New Testament is here quoted in verse 1 of Psalm 110. So look at verse 1. We see that this is a psalm of David, and we know that for sure because Jesus tells us in the New Testament, which we'll look at in a moment. But look what it says here. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 110 is not very long, but it is powerful. So let's just think about, first of all, we see here that Christ is God in verse 1. Verse 1 is a conversation between Yahweh and Jesus Christ. Now, in your English Bible, you probably have two different forms of the word Lord, which might be confusing, but at least most of our Bibles have have made somewhat of a distinction for us in the Hebrew here. So let me just point them out if you're not familiar. We have God the Father in the form of all capital letters, Lord, 
all capital letters, when you see that in your Old Testament, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's distinguishing between Adonai, which is Lord, the second Lord in your verse 1. So this conversation between God the Father and God the Son is taking place here. And notice, God the Father, or Yahweh, refers to Jesus Christ as Adonai, Lord. That's, that's significant in this context here. You'll see it's God the Father mentioning something about God the Son. What, what, what is important here? Well, Jesus is going to use this in a moment. I'll show you how he uses this particular verse. But let me just highlight this for you. Notice what does God the Father say? Well, we see that God the Father inviting God the Son in his ascension to sit at this place of honor in the heavenly throne room. He says, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. Well, if you read your New Testament, you know Jesus' first coming was in humiliation. But the Bible says that Jesus didn't stay there in that form. He was exalted. He is exalted. And ever since he left this earth some approximately 2,000 years ago, he has been exalted in this place of honor there in the throne room of heaven. But not only that, we see that the Father assures the Son that his enemies will be humbled And he says that in this form here in verse 1, he says that I will make your enemies your footstool. Uh, To be a footstool was a place of disgrace. It it symbolized subjugation. Uh, This is typical. You, You can even read about this in the book of Joshua. Joshua did this with some of the kings of Canaan. Uh, And this was typical after a, a great military victory. The leaders would often humiliate their defeated enemies by stepping on their heads or their necks. It was a sign of humiliation, subjugating their enemy. And that's what God the Father is saying to God the Son, Jesus here. He's saying, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. They will be underneath your feet, totally dominated by you. Well, that's interesting because Jesus ends up quoting verse 1 here in the Gospels. The Gospel writers grasp a hold of this truth from Jesus. And we see, for example, in Matthew 22, we'll look at that in a moment, but Matthew 22 is near the end of Christ's earthly ministry, not long before his arrest and his crucifixion. And there was a time there when the leaders of Israel were trying to trap Jesus, they would often ask Jesus questions to try to trick him. They would try to turn the tables against Jesus by asking him these questions. They were hoping he wouldn't either be able to answer or he would answer them in a way that he, they would use his own words against him. Of course, you can't trick God. And look how Jesus uses Psalm 110, verse 1 here. In Psalm, or, sorry, Matthew 22 is just one example of how Jesus uses this. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? When Jesus, by the way, when he says Christ, he, he's referring to the Messiah. That's the Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one. So Jesus goes on to say, Well, then whose son is he, the Christ, the Messiah? 
And they said to Jesus, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day till anyone, or till that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Don't you love it when Jesus just silences his critics? <laughs> what a powerful teacher. What a, what a powerful way to use the Old Testament. So an apparently easy question here was suddenly turned into a very profound question. For if David called his natural physical descendant, who of course was the Messiah, he calls him Lord, it could only be because the one who, who uh, to come would somehow be greater than David was. And that's one of the points that Jesus is, is teaching us here, that the Messiah is greater than David. And so the only way that could happen then is if the Messiah were more than just a mere man. The Messiah had to be more than a mere man. He'd have to be a divine Messiah. In other words, he had to be God. And so Jesus is using Psalm 110 to teach everybody that he is God. And so the answer to the question then, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, whose son is he? must be that he is both the son of David and the son of God. In other words, it has to be the teaching that Paul was revealing in Romans chapter 1. And here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 3. He says, as to his human nature, he was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul combines the two ideas together in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. He's saying he is physically the son of David, but he is also the son of God, combined into one person. And so when Jesus asked the Pharisees his question, he's referring back to Psalm 110, verse 1 here. He's also establishing a pattern that you need to take note of. This pattern of how do you interpret the Old Testament? And of course, Jesus' disciples picks up on Jesus' teaching here, and they grasp it with both hands, which is why Psalm 110 ends up becoming the most quoted psalm in the whole Bible. Because Jesus' disciples see Jesus' enthusiasm and passion for it, and, and they, they caught on to that. And so they love to quote this psalm. In fact, they refer to it so often, it ends up becoming the most quoted in the New Testament. Verse 1 is the most quoted verse of all verses in the Old Testament, at least 27 times. You'll see it in the Gospels. You see it in the book of Acts. You'll see it quoted in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews, as well as 1 Peter. And by the way, we will be looking at, what does the Bible say in, in Hebrews? We'll look at that in a moment. But So we, we see, first of all, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is God. Jesus was teaching that even himself in the Gospels. But Psalm 110 also teaches us that 
Christ is a king. He is a king. As verse 2 says that the Lord, notice again all capital letters, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. So verse 2 teaches that God will enlarge the king's authority. God the Father is going to enlarge Jesus' authority. And we see that through this symbolism of a scepter. Some of you may have seen kings and queens of old holding scepters. That was a powerful symbol of the authority of the one holding it. A scepter was a symbol of governmental power and authority. And so God the Father was giving that authority to His Son. We also see in verse 2 that He's going to rule from the earthly throne of His Father, David. And He's going to do this in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which you can read in the books of Samuel. And the Bible says that this is going to take place in Jerusalem. So God is not done with Israel. He's not done with Jerusalem in particular. God has some uh, fulfillment biblical prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, even in Jerusalem itself. So when you see the word Zion in your Bible there, verse 2, that's referring to Jerusalem. And we know this is referring to the earthly Jerusalem, not the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, because there's no enemies in heaven. There's no enemies, enemies in heaven. All enemies will be dealt with here on earth. And so we, we see that, that Christ's rule is going to be even in the midst of his enemies here on earth. And verse 3 teaches us that during Christ's reign, that true believers are going to serve him willingly. We, we see that uh, the true believers are going to come back with Jesus Christ, the battle of Armageddon, which will take place at the end of the tribulation. And Jesus is going to slaughter his enemies, total destruction. And only believers are going to enter into his thousand-year reign on this earth, which we call the millennial, the millennial kingdom. And the Bible says that the believers, the true believers, are going to serve Jesus. They're going to rule and reign with Jesus during that thousand-year period. So verse 3 says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And they will be sanctified and glorified during this time. So we see that Christ is God. Number two, Christ is a king. But this is interesting. Psalm 110 combines those thoughts with this third thought that Christ is also a priest. He is also a priest. But he's not just any priest because look what verse 4 says. It says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. Look what he says about Jesus. God the Father says this about the Messiah. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we got God the Father vowing here to establish his son's priesthood. This comes with all the authority of heaven and God himself on his son. But this isn't just any priesthood. This is special. There's a connection to Melchizedek. Because notice that the priesthood is forever, not just temporarily, but forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what's the point of that? Why does it even say that? Here's the point, my friends. That Jesus' sacrifice is complete. 
However, even though it is complete, Christ's work is not finished. His sacrifice is complete. Does that make sense? But Christ has a continuing ministry in heaven on your behalf, if you're a believer. See, He is praying you into heaven. And you can thank God He is. Because we need, we still need a great high priest. And so His work continues on our behalf. Well, you might ask, well, who is this Melchizedek? (laughs) Who is Melchizedek? Interesting guy. If you know anything about him, you'll know that he appears in three different places in your Bible. He is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 14 as a part of the story of Abraham. And then after a thousand years, he shows up here in Psalm 110. And then after another thousand years, we see him emerging as a major celebrity in the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews mentions Melchizedek eight times. He also uses that phrase after the order of Melchizedek another four times. And so it's important that we try to discover why is Melchizedek so important in our Bibles? Well, let's begin with the origin of Melchizedek here in the book of Genesis. We'll just quickly go through these mentionings of Melchizedek so we understand why this particular chapter was so important to Jesus. Well, he's mentioned in Genesis 14. Abraham, just just so you understand the context, and then we'll, we'll read together the verses, but here's the context for you in Genesis 14. Abraham has succeeded in rescuing his nephew Lot, as well as Lot's family, as well as Lot's possessions, And you say, well, why did he need rescuing? Well, he was rescued from this coalition of four kings who had attacked Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Anyway, they had overcome five other kings, including the king of Sodom, where Lot and his family were living. And on his way back from the battle, which, of course, you remember Abraham won, not just Abraham by himself, but Abraham and his servants won that battle. God gave the victory there. And so as he's coming back from that battle and that victory, Abraham's met by this man called Melchizedek, who the Bible identifies for us in two ways. It identifies him as the king of Salem, but also a priest of God. Very unusual. First time in all the Bible that I'm aware of where you have a king and a priest mentioned as one person. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him a tithe of all the spoils of the battle. And the entire story is told for us in just three verses. So I'll put them on the screen here for you. Genesis 14, let's start in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Well, that's all that Genesis says about this guy. And then we don't hear about him again for another thousand years, (laughs) till, till Psalm 110. Now, one of the problems with Melchizedek is we have no idea 
who this guy really was, other than what, of course, the Bible tells us. And so there's been all kinds of conjecture and assumptions made about Melchizedek. Let me just caution you to squelch your theories. Let's just stick to what the Bible says, all right? What we do learn from the Bible is Melchizedek is not Jesus Christ, clearly not Jesus Christ, although there has been some conjecture that maybe he was a pre-incarnate Christ. The Bible doesn't clearly say that, so I'm not going to go there. But one thing we do learn, he is a type of Christ, and so in that respect, two important things are told about him. Here's what we do know, because the Bible says so. First, we know his name. Melchizedek, probably a title, which means king of righteousness. As you probably know, titles and names in Scripture are very important and significant. This is a significant title for Jesus, who, of course, has become our righteousness. The second thing we learn is Melchizedek is said to have been a king of Salem. King of Salem just means king of peace. Again, another title for Jesus Christ. And so, combine those two ideas together. Combine them together, this king of righteousness who is king of peace. And we see that Christ has become our righteousness through his death, his burial, and resurrection. And as a result of that, Jesus has made peace possible between us and God, between ourselves and God, because... He is peace. It's pretty cool when you see that here. But what else do we need to know? Well, in Psalm 110, Melchizedek shows up again. In verse 4, he, God the Father says of Jesus that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see that the Messiah is a king and a priest combined into one person. That's significant that Jesus fulfills both offices of king and priest. So here we have the second time Melchizedek appears in the Bible in this particular psalm, and again, clearly uses a type of the Messiah. And by the way, the first verse in Psalm 110 described David's Lord as a divine Messiah. He's God. And then verse 4 adds this idea that the Messiah is also going to be a priest, but not according to the order of Aaron. Remember, Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. But in this case, Jesus is described as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's a novel concept, because Christ here is combined in these offices of king and priest. And of course, that that's going to just be brought out into more significant importance for us in the book of Hebrews. And so let's move on to Hebrews now, and we see the priestly reign of Christ in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is very significant because it is basically a commentary on Psalm 110, as well as Genesis. But it's it's a great treatment of, of particularly Melchizedek, it's an inspired commentary, particularly, I, I find it incredibly helpful in verse 4 here of Psalm 110. Let me just highlight a couple of these phrases for us in verse 4 and see what does Hebrews have to comment on that. 
Well, Psalm 110 verse 4 says that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is a priest forever. He's not just any priest. He's not a temporary priest. He is a priest forever. And so in Hebrews 7, the author focuses on that word forever, and he makes two points for us. First, because no genealogy of Melchizedek is given, that ancient king ends up becoming a symbol of an eternal priesthood that is one without beginning or end. By the way, before I read Hebrews 7 for you, just because the Bible doesn't mention his genealogy, just because it says that he is without father or mother doesn't mean he didn't have a father or mother. All right, I just mentioned that because there are people who get really weird in their Bible interpretation on this. This guy is just a man like me, like you, a normal man. He is a significant man, but he did have a father and mother. The Bible just doesn't mention it. Okay, So that's why Hebrews 7 verse 3 here says that Melchizedek is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like... Notice the word like, that is significant in your interpretation of this. It doesn't mean he is the Son of God. It means he is like the Son of God. In this fact, he remains a priest forever. He remains a priest forever. He's not after the order of Aaron, but he is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the second point is kind of the opposite of the first one. The first one being that he, because of no genealogy, uh, he is without beginning or end. But here's the point. The second point is, unlike the priesthood of Jesus, the ancient Jewish priesthood was, was not forever. So Jesus is forever. His priesthood is forever. Melchizedek's was forever, but not, but not the case with a normal Jewish priest. The, the normal Jewish priest would, would die. There was just this long line of, of succession where these earthly priests would die. And Hebrews points this out for us. Their deaths signifying the transience of, what, of their priesthood. And So look what Hebrews 7 verse 23 says. There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, what is the therefore there for? Well, Jesus' priesthood is forever. Here's the significance, my friends. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Amen! Hallelujah! We ought to be all standing up and shouting and rejoicing and high-fiving and celebrating together. At least in your hearts you should be. So we see, according to Psalm 110, verse 4, he is a priest forever. But verse 4 also says he is after the order of Melchizedek. Now the last time the author of Hebrews mentions the order of Melchizedek is in chapter 7. That particular chapter helps explain some of these words here for us, so I'll put them on the screen here for you. So again, remember, use Scripture to interpret Scripture. 
Scripture's its own best interpreter. So look at this. Hebrews 7, verse 18. The former regulation or order is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So the new priesthood of Jesus here is distinct. It's unique. It's different from the Aaronic priesthood. It is superior to Aaron's priesthood. And that, by the way, what's the whole point of Hebrews anyway, my friends? Showing that Jesus is superior. Jesus is the best in every way. He's not after the order of Aaron, which, by the way, is the basic point of the exposition of chapters 8 through 10 of Hebrews. And so these chapters are telling us three different ways, at least three ways, which the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Because he's not after the order of Aaron. He's after the order of Melchizedek. So, let's just think about the three ways in which Jesus' priesthood is superior. Number one, it established a better covenant. Jesus' priesthood established a better covenant. So, under that old covenant, during the Old Testament, when that was established, it was on the principle that if the people remained faithful to God and they obeyed God, that God would protect them and God would bless them. You read in, for example, in Deuteronomy God says, obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. That was his promise to them. And we see that being lived out as you read on in your historical books and the prophets in the Old Testament. So this was the covenant that was established on Mount Sinai. Remember when the children of Israel, the Hebrews, left Egypt? They eventually made it to Mount Sinai. God gives them his covenant. That was a good covenant just as the law on which it was based was good. But we need to understand something, my friends, is that the the people were not able to live up to that covenant. There is no way they could keep that covenant. There was at least 613 laws. It was impossible. Therefore, God pointed to a new and better covenant to come. The whole point of that was to show they needed Jesus. They needed this, this great high priest under the new covenant. And so Jesus' priesthood established a better covenant. Number two, the second way Jesus' priesthood is superior to Aaron's is that Jesus made a real atonement. Uh, atonement, by the way, what does that mean, you ask? Just break it up into three parts. It means at one mint. At one mint. It's where Jesus reconciles God's enemies to God. He makes those who are God's enemies now his family, and they're at peace with one another. And so in the ninth chapter of Hebrews, the author makes a contrast between the ceremonies that were carried out by the ancient Jewish priests and then the true sacrifice for sin that was made by Jesus Christ. Big difference. The old sacrifices were useful, but never really dealt with people's sin. They were useful in teaching the way of salvation, they pointed to the coming of Jesus. Uh, they were suggesting the nature of Jesus' work, but they didn't actually remove sin. They just temporarily covered sin, which is why they had to keep doing 
the killing of animals all of the time. They never truly cleared the burdened conscience of the worshiper. They were still guilty. Which what Hebrews, look what Hebrews 9, verse 9 says in this regard. It says, The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. What new order? The order. The new order being, Jesus is not after Aaron's line. He is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, Jesus established a better covenant. He established a real atonement. You say, well, well, how different here is this in Jesus' case? He actually made an atonement for sin. Aaron's line could never do that. So Jesus did it by dying himself. He offered his own blood in the place of those who had broken God's law. I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews argues this very point. In Hebrews 9, verse 12. Now I've inserted the word Christ because it's in the context, but not in that particular verse. So Hebrews 9, verse 12 says, Christ did not enter the most holy place of the tabernacle by means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So Jesus made a real atonement. So He was not only the sacrifice, but He's also the high priest. Number three. Christ's priesthood is superior because it did not need to be repeated. Again, Hebrews shows us this point. Jesus' priestly work was done, and it was done once for all. And so that's why you have Jesus, when he's on the cross, he cries out, It is finished! What, what's finished? God's will. His whole mission was finished. Jesus made true atonement for sins, and when he had completed his work, he showed he had done it. How? He sits down. He sits, because his work is finished. And where does he sit? He sits at the Father's right hand. Again, Hebrews shows us this in chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands. Notice the word stands. What is he doing? He's standing. He's working. He has to continually keep working, performing his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what does he do? He doesn't keep standing. No, he sits 
he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That is so awesome. So my friends, what's the conclusion? Well, here's the proposition for you, that God wants you to place your full faith in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter, my friend, if you're a non-Christian or if you're a Christian today. The proposition is the same for you. God wants us to place our full faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the conclusion. Leave off the lesser ceremonies or, or even no ceremonies at all. Put those things aside because they cannot save you. They will never sanctify you. We've got to cling full-heartedly to Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, have you trusted Jesus as God's appointed priest who has made atonement for your sins? Do you believe, my friend, that Jesus, when He was on the cross, had your sins in mind? All of your sins, if you're a Christian, have been paid for. The penalty's been paid for. Your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins were nailed on Jesus. If you put your faith in Him. If not, my friend, you have nothing to look forward to but His condemnation. But as Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, my friend, if you are in Christ, you are, a, you are trusting in Him and in Him alone, then guess what? You have a glorious future. Well, Psalm 110 doesn't end with just showing us that Christ is God and that Christ is a king and that Christ is a priest. It ends with showing us that He is coming again as a victorious warrior. Oh, His first coming was in humility. But when you see Jesus come again, He is not a meek and mild little baby. He is a conquering warrior. Look what verse 5 says. The Lord is at your right hand and He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses, and He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Whoa. Uh, That's not the Jesus you see in the Gospels, is it? Nope. This is a different Jesus. This talks of His judgment and what it's going to be like when He comes. Let me just highlight three points for you of a victorious warrior. Number one, we see that Christ's judgment will be severe. Very severe. The word execute in your Bible there translates a word that refers to shattering, dashing to pieces. It's going to be the type of day that is going to truly earn the title that we see here in verse 5. It is the day of His wrath. It's going to be the day in which, as verse 6 says, He's going to fill all the hollow places of the earth with dead bodies. (laughs) The earth's going to be made flat because of all these dead bodies. Well, Some try to remove the sting of this kind of language here. Try to make Jesus into something He's not by pointing out that this is all figurative language. Well, if it is figurative language, my friends, which I don't think it is, 
may I remind you a very important point of Bible interpretation? Listen closely. Yes, there is figurative language in your Bible, but it's there to teach you plain, literal truth. Well, what kind of reality is it that requires such language to convey this truth? Well, the Bible's teaching that the divine judgment that these terms were meant to express here is a most fearful and dreadful reality. It is reality. Christ's judgment will be severe. Number two, Christ's judgment will be thorough. Notice verse 5 says that even the kings of the earth will be judged. The heads of these countries, verse 6, are going to be judged. There's not going to be any that are that are going to stand above Jesus, they will all be in subjection to King Jesus. And so this judgment's going to go throughout the nations, verse 6 says, through all the nations of the earth. No one will be left out. All will be judged. It will be thorough. Number three, Christ's judgment will be completed. I think that's the idea of verse 7. His judgment will be completed. In other words, he's not going to fail in his mission as a victorious warrior. He's not going to fail through any lack of determination or any vigor on his part. We often undertake a work. This ever happened? I'm sure this has happened to you, right? You do some job and you become weary or you lose interest in whatever work that is. But we see in verse 7 that this victorious warrior, Messiah here, is not going to give up the work of judgment until it's completed, until it's done. Oh yes, when we work, when we have missions, sometimes we our, droops, our, our heads might droop by when we become exhausted. But the Lord Jesus, He's like a victorious warrior who is in the process of pursuing his fleeing enemies and he's going to come to the stream he's going to drink not because he needs to but he's going to be refreshed and then he's going to continue his pursuit overtaking his enemies we see the lord jesus is god's appointed king in psalm 110 he's going to win the victory over us and over everybody he's going to do it in one of two ways either he's going to win the victory by making us willing to receive his salvation, or he's going to bring us under his judgment. Either way, the Bible says every knee will bow to King Jesus. Every knee will bow. Either way, he's going to have the victory. So this psalm presents Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord of all and as a Savior for everyone who believes in him. And so, my friend, it's important that Every person respond rightly in order then to be received by King Jesus. My friends, you have to come to Christ on His terms, not your own. Have you done that? Have you come to King Jesus on His terms? As Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew chapter 5, you have to come empty-handed, an empty spirit, empty-handed to him you you can't offer him anything that's going to impress him and so it's important that every person respond rightly and so 
my friends, let me ask you this. If you're a non-Christian today, an unbeliever, and by that I mean you've, you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never believed in Him to, to deal with your greatest problem, which is your sin, you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then, my friend, you have to repent of your sin and trust, believe in Christ alone. See, repentance is the message that Jesus preached. It's the message His apostles preached. His disciples after Him preached repentance. It just means you literally change your mind in regard to your sin. You see your sin as, as Jesus sees it. And then you, you come to Him. Turn to Him. Forsaking your sin and trusting in Jesus alone. Some non-Christians repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Christian friends, it's the same for you. If you're a Christian today, you've already done that. But my friends, the gospel is also for you. You must also trust in the one who has revealed himself in Psalm 110 as God, King, Priest, and a victorious warrior. My friend, he is coming again. But when He comes, if you have not put your faith in Christ alone, you can only expect His condemnation and His wrath to be poured out on you. The good news is, Christians aren't going to receive that. They'll return with King Jesus and rule and reign with Him. They'll know Him as their personal King. They'll serve Him willingly. What a glorious day that will be. And so... We as believers, we must also repent of our sins, must continually repent, forsake our sins, and come believing in who Jesus has revealed himself to believe, as he's revealed himself, even in chapters like Psalm 110. So, my friends, have you done that? Are you continually doing that? See, sin is our greatest problem, even as believers. It's still an issue that we have to deal with. And so, my friends, may God... Be gracious to you and show you who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, who is God, king, priest, and warrior. May we love him and serve him as he has revealed himself to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Psalm 110. Thank you for giving us your spirit that enables us to understand what this psalm is teaching us. And so we ask that our spiritual eyes would be opened to behold King Jesus, to see Him in all of His glory. And may we love Him as He has been revealed to us. May we not be scared off by some of these scary passages of Scripture. But may we draw, be drawn to them. May we accept them and believe them. And may we act upon the Word of God. May we not just be hearers of the Word, but doers as well. (sighs) May the Holy Spirit impress these truths on our hearts. And whatever the application might be, may we continually believe them. And may they change us. May the Word of God conform us into the image of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.